Let's talk Amy Coney Barrett, the Supreme Court nominee, the nomination and confirmation process, and I'm going to answer a whole bunch of your questions in this episode. There is so much here. You guys, legit crew, came through with the questions on this episode. There's nothing else to do but get into it. Hey there, this is Get Legit Law and Shit, and I'm Emily D. Baker, badass lawyer for online business. I've been a licensed attorney for over 15 years, and I'm a former prosecutor. So yeah, I know some shit, and we're going to talk about the legal shit you need to know. But don't worry, this is not another boring business podcast. So let's get started. I am overwhelmed by you guys, and I'm so deeply appreciative. The questions I got on both YouTube and in the Facebook community were incredible. Thank you so much for being a part of it. If you're like, how did I miss that we got to ask questions for this episode? That's okay. You can hop in the Facebook community, getlegitlive.com. It's also linked in the description in the show notes. You can text me. Yes, we have text now. So if you haven't done that yet, jump on in. It's free. I mean, regular text messaging rates might apply. Oh my God, I sound like a lawyer <laughs> disclaiming things. But you can just go ahead and text me. It's me. It's not like a chat bot or anything like that. It's me. 615-455-3216. And that's in the show notes too. And if you watch these on YouTube, you can always comment there. If you didn't know that these were on YouTube, guess what? The Get Legit Launch podcast is now on video, and there are video episodes of me recording the episode up on YouTube. So if you want to watch instead of listen, I realize some of you guys are audio and you're like, no, I listen to the podcast while I'm driving or cleaning or doing other stuff. And some of you are like, I just want to watch you flail around ridiculously and talk with your hands, which I do whether I'm on video or not. <laughs> True story. Today, we are talking about Amy Coney Barrett and the Supreme Court confirmation process. We've been through this a lot in our lifetime. It just feels crazier in an election year, and I completely understand that. I don't know if you watched a whole crap ton of C-SPAN <laughs> during the confirmation process, but I sure did. And the General Senate vote on this is going to be October 22nd. So this is going to come out right before that vote. I will be very surprised if she is not confirmed by the Senate. They have enough votes. They need a simple majority. A simple majority is 51. Right now, there are currently 53 Republicans in the Senate, 42 Democrats, two independents. So it's very likely to me that she will be confirmed this week. There has been a lot of flap about it because it's so close to an election, but I have a question on that, so I will get to that in a minute. Um, general impressions of the whole Kabuki Theater confirmation hearing process, most senators use the time to do one of two things. Either scream about the process and the ACA and why this is a sham proceeding, or attack the people who had just screamed about the process, the ACA, and why it was a sham proceeding. I thought Judge Barrett sat there very patiently while everybody had their political um, temper tantrums with one another. I think that over time, the confirmation process has gotten a little testier each time, um, a little more pointed. But I also think that right now people are running for re-election and a lot of senators are running for re-election or for other elections. And so they also use their time on TV during a very publicized proceeding during a time when people are still home quite a lot to, um, you know, grandstand. And that's, and we saw that on all sides of the aisle and really saw a lot of the time not being used to dive into the appropriate things to ask Judge Barrett about, which are her judicial temperament, her judicial philosophy, how she decides cases. What was interesting for me to hear and what I really enjoyed hearing from her was her process of deciding cases and that process being that she, um, you know, hears the case, thinks on the case, and then writes her opinion and goes back and reads her opinion from the perspective of the party she's ruling against so that she can make sure that they understand 
The thing with law is that it's not always going to make everybody happy. It often doesn't make anybody happy. <laughs> and that's, that is the truth. But to know that she as a judge is going to go back through from the perspective of the party she's ruled against and say, would they at least understand why the law requires this outcome, I think is very conscientious. It's something that I um, completely understand because it's what I try to do in a lot of my videos, my podcasts, my commentary, especially with things like the Brianna Taylor case. My goal is never to defend one side or the other. It's to explain why the law required the result that was required and then explain my own personal thoughts, opinions, and, and what have you around it. But to really explain, this is what the law says, and this is why when you apply these facts to this law, you get this result. And that's really, from my perspective, what we need judges to do. The law says this. The facts are this. And when you put those facts with this law, the reasonable outcome is this other thing. Judge Barrett made very clear where she stands on this in her opening statement at the beginning of all this, and then she reiterated it. And from her opening statement, she talked about um, clerking for the late Supreme Court Justice Scalia and said of that, quote, more than his style of writing, though, it was the content of Justice Scalia's reasoning that shaped me. His judicial philosophy was straightforward. A judge must apply the law as written, not as the judge wishes it were. Sometimes that approach meant reaching results that he did not like. But as he put it in one of his best-known opinions, that is what it means to say we have a government of laws, not of men. She goes on to say, Justice Scalia taught me more than just law. He was devoted to his family, resolute in his beliefs, and fearless of criticism. And as I embarked on my own legal career, I resolved to maintain the same perspective. There is a tendency in our profession to treat the practice of law as all-consuming while losing sight of everything else, but that makes for a shallow and unfulfilling life. I worked hard as a lawyer and as a professor. I owed that to my clients, my students, and myself, but I never let the law define my identity or crowd out the rest of my life. A similar principle applies to the role of courts. Courts have a vital responsibility to enforce the rule of law, which is critical to a free society. But the courts are not designed to solve every problem or right every wrong in our public life. The policy decisions and value judgments of government must be made by the political branches elected by and accountable to the people. The public should not expect the courts to do so, and the courts should not try. End quote. That is her statement of her judicial philosophy. And I will link below a video that I talk about this in. She really falls right into the originalist, textualist, kind of strict constructionist judicial philosophy. It's very confusing to me to watch the media kind of rewrite words and redefine words. If she's confirmed, it will bring in a wave of conservative judicial activism. And I'm like, but. That's the opposite. What? Most conservative judges fall on the side of, no, no, no. We're going to stick to what it says, and we're going to let the legislature do their fucking job and legislate the laws because we have three branches of government, and the only non-political branch is the court. So even if my feelings are this, if the law says that, that's the law of the land written by the legislature accountable to the people. So... That is where she she kind of falls in the judicial philosophy realm. I talk about judicial restraint versus kind of the living document view, um, the more activist view of the role of, of judiciary. I lean on the side of textualists with reasonable interpretation, meaning if the Constitution says every man, I read that to mean person. You know, yes, at the time we might have read man to be a biological man, but We've come into personhood where that means person, just people, you know? So there are all different shapes and colors of how people believe the Constitution should be interpreted. But what I do believe is that we have three branches of government. When one of them isn't working, it's not the job of the other branch to go, don't worry, boo, we'll do your job. It's like if your kids aren't doing their chores, the job of the parent is not to do the fucking chores. The job of the parent is to help your kids understand how to do their chores and say, well, you haven't done your chores, therefore you have no 
clean laundry, clean dishes, whatever it is, it breaks down the same with the court. If the legislature is not getting it done, it's the court's job to say, this is how the law here applies. And if you don't like it, make new law. Like, get off your your soapboxes on your diabolical, diametrically opposed sides. Come together and write the laws you want to write. Go forth. Make it happen. (laughs) So when we understand her role of her interpretation of the role of a judge, then we kind of understand how this whole confirmation process went down and why there were things that she declined to answer or answered. And I have questions about that. So we'll get into those in just a second. But also, I think a lot of people are concerned that the day she is, you know, confirmed to the Supreme Court and becomes a sitting justice, that all of a sudden she's going to say, okay, today's day one, and I hate these things, and we're going to just overrule them. And that's not how the Supreme Court works. It works on cases and controversies. There has to be something before the court to be decided. And (laughs) there have to be four judges that agree it needs to be decided. And it has to, you know, be such that there is a disagreement with the circuit courts. There's a disagreement with the state. There has to be a purpose where the Supreme Court needs to intervene versus the Supreme Court just feels like it. It's very need-based. And I, I saw this with a lot of the senators questioning is that some of them didn't understand what it meant to be neutral and to be part of something larger than yourself where the purpose is bigger than your own wants or beliefs And it's clear that Judge Barrett believes that her role as a judge is her being part of something larger than herself, and her role is not to impose her will, but to interpret the law, and then to let the legislature impose their will by writing the laws, because that's who the people elect. We don't elect Supreme Court justices. They sit. (laughs) They're brought in by the Senate, and they sit for life because it is their role to keep an even keel in the country so that we don't have a um, vocal minority taking over the rule of law of the country. And that's why the legislature may move fast, but the Supreme Court moves slower. It's to keep kind of a consistent and even approach to the laws as we move forward. Some may disagree with that. Some may not like that. Some do like that. It really, that breaks down on personal philosophy, but your personal philosophy is right for you. And this is where voting matters so much. You vote for people that believe the same way you do and have the same philosophical approach that you do. But the thing is, the thing that's so frustrating is that there is a large vocal group that wants to venerate Judge Ginsburg, but then forgets that she also said that this was how the courts worked. In her opening statement to Senate, when she was being confirmed, she brought down a lot of how she believes you should work as a judge. And she also talked about women being on the bench. And I know I've seen every kind of shirt, every Etsy thing, every coffee mug, all the things that said until there are nine. And she had been asked, when do you see there being enough women on the Supreme Court? And she said, when there are nine. And she kind of made the point that nobody thinks it's extraordinary when there are nine men on the court, but then if there were nine women, people are like, what? Mind blown. And it's like, no, there's just, we're judges at this point. So what she said, and I, again, all linked below, (laughs) what she said directly in her opening statement was, in my lifetime, I expect to see three, four, perhaps even more women on the high court bench, women not shaped from the same mold, but of different complexions. And that's not just regarding race, that's regarding all different viewpoints and philosophies. Justice Ginsburg did not shy away from robust debate and differences. She had a very close friendship with Judge Scalia, who in writing, the two were on polar opposite ends when you read their opinions or if you read one dissenting from the other, but they respected each other intellectually. And I think Both were trying to preserve the law of the land as they saw it in the way that they saw right and preserve the Constitution in the way they saw it and the way they saw right. So there was a mutual respect. And when courts decide cases, they don't get a case and go, oh, yeah, 
it's, and Roe v. Wade has been talked about a lot in this, and that's why I'm going to use it as an example. Oh, it's Roe v. Wade. I hate this case. Like, I'm done. They listen to the part of the case that's coming before them because often it's not the whole case. It's a provision of something. It's not the whole thing. It's a provision of a thing. And then they listen to the briefs or read the briefs. They listen to the arguments. They meet and confer with their law clerks. They meet and confer with their colleagues. They have intellectual discussions and consideration. They sleep on it. They decide slowly what should happen, and they are open to having their mind changed by their colleagues and their law clerks and the litigants and the research. Otherwise, there's literally no point in our entire judicial system if all the judges walk in and go, uh, yeah, fuck that shit. I'm not, I believe this, and so that's just what I'm going to do. And there's no amount of anything that can change my mind. That doesn't give us a healthy and functioning judicial system. It has to be that the judge comes in neutral and says, I want to hear what everyone has to say. I want to research what the law says. I want to talk to my colleagues about it, and then I will decide. Some of the judges that I appeared before and respected the most were the ones who would say, I need time on this. Okay, take your time to rule on this. We are litigating issues of significance, especially in criminal law. It's not that one side you know, loses and they lose some money. It's that when they lose they either feel like justice has been denied from them or they go to prison. So when judges are like, I need more time, good, take your time, do your research, talk to your colleagues. That's totally fine because thought needs space and sometimes you need other input to form your thoughts. It's something that I hate about cancel culture right now is that it doesn't feel like there's a safe space to have a conversation. I mean, we're a safe space here. (laughs) There's no judgment there are things that that people will disagree with me on and I will disagree with them on. But if we come from a place of respect and desiring to understand one another, I will always engage in that conversation. Always. So that's what I really respect quite a bit about Judge Ginsburg is even when she had um, more activist views, she would bring to the court, not always, oftentimes, <laughs> but not always, activism. So in her confirmation, she also said, quote, let me try to state in a nutshell how I view the work of judging. My approach, I believe, is neither liberal nor conservative. Rather, it is rooted in the place of the judiciary of judges in our democratic society. The Constitution's preamble speaks first of we, the people, and then their elected representatives. The judiciary is third in line, and it is placed apart from the political fray so that its members can judge fairly, impartially, in accordance with the law, and without fear of the animosity or any pressure group. In Alexander Hamilton's words, the mission of judges is to secure a steady, upright, and impartial administration of the laws. I would add that the judge should carry out the function without fanfare, but with due care. She should decide the case before her without reaching out to cover cases not yet seen. She should be ever mindful as judge. And then Justice Benjamin Nathan Cardozo said, Justice is not to be taken by storm. She is to be wooed by slow advances. That really reiterates what I've been talking about with the court. I should have said end quote after slow advances. We got to wooing justice with slow advances. (laughs) I just love that quote from Judge Cardozo. (laughs) But that's the point of the high court is to allow things to change slowly. The legislature can change more quickly because the people every two years in some cases, you get to a midterm and it's like, oh shit, we're all up for re-election again. The people get to constantly reaffirm what they want as a majority, who they're voting for. And this is really the argument you're seeing the GOP make with why they're like, we're going forward. Elections have consequences. We're in power. A seat came up. We're doing it. And that's and that's why they're not going to back down from it at all, because that's that's the belief is people can vote. People voted. We serve until the end of our term. And this is part of our term. And we're going forward. There's questions about that. So I'll get to it in a minute. When we talk about Amy Coney Barrett answering or not answering questions, part of what's going to come up is the Ginsburg rule. This was something that Joe Biden really highlighted during Judge Judge Ginsburg's 1993 nomination 
and confirmation process because he didn't want her questioned about her previous um, kind of more activist role because she was an advocate before she was a judge. So she addressed it a bit in her opening statements to the confirmation hearing, saying, quote, I come to this proceeding to be judged as a judge, not as an advocate. Because I am and hope to continue to be a judge, it would be wrong for me to say or to preview in this legislative chamber how I would cast my vote on questions the Supreme Court may be called upon to decide. Were I to rehearse here what I would say or how I would reason on such questions, I would act injudiciously. (laughs) She goes on to say, Judges in our system are bound to decide concrete cases, not abstract issues. Each case comes to court based on particular facts, and its decision should turn on those facts and the governing law stated and explained in light of the particular arguments of the parties or their representatives present. A judge sworn to decide impartially can offer no forecasts, no hints, for that would show not only disregard for the specifics of a particular case, it would display disdain for the entire judicial process. That basically sums it up. (laughs) We'll come back to the rest of what Judge Ginsburg, not the rest, but other parts of what Judge Ginsburg said in her own confirmation proceedings as we come back to this, because there are some other nuggets in there that really give clarity to the fact that what we're seeing with Judge Barrett and what we saw in confirmation with Judge Ginsburg aren't all that different. And it's frustrating to me that the media is like, I'm like, no, this isn't, this isn't that different. (laughs) Also, I feel like I've been talking forever. And if we don't move on, this is going to be a very long episode. So let's keep going. (laughs) The questions y'all asked, I said it earlier, so I'm not going to harp on it, but the questions y'all asked were everything and I'm living. So let's just jump into the questions. Question number one comes from Jason Fertel over on YouTube. He asked me kind of a two-part little question. The first was to clarify Senator Whitehouse and Senator Cruz's dark money comments. If you didn't see this exchange, it is all over the internet. You can go find it. Senator Whitehouse had like a whole whiteboard of where money was coming from and how money was going into the process and gave a whole like 20-plus minute dialogue about dark money influencing judicial nomination process. I will say that Judge Barrett was also considered when Judge Kavanaugh was seated. So it's not as if Judge Barrett's like a new name that came out of left field. This She was confirmed for the circuit court. It was not, you know, unknown that she was on the shortlist for the Supreme Court. So I mean, it's not it's not as if somebody was out lobbying for her and all of a sudden out of nowhere she was selected. This is a longer process than that. Either way, the dark money comment is referring to political spending by nonprofit organizations. The reason it's called dark money is that you can't always trace where the money comes into the nonprofit. So if I went and donated to a politician or a campaign, you would see my name and what I donated. If I donated to a particular nonprofit, they would not necessarily keep track of who's donating, and then the nonprofit donates to the political party or the cause or or what have you. So it's money that's harder to trace coming into politics. Senator Cruz then said, uh, yeah, this is an issue. Political action committees are an issue. This money is an issue, but both parties are are deep, like knee-deep in this money. The bigger conversation here that wasn't had that needs to be had again is how money plays into the election system in the United States. That is a much larger conversation. I think most at this point are like, oh, it's so much money. So much money comes into politics. And um, there's an article I'm linking about the dark money and where it goes. There are quite a lot of different studies researching this, and you are welcome to go down this rabbit hole if you're interested. But the reference to dark money is money that's harder to trace as to who's giving the money to the PAC or to the nonprofit that is then giving the money to the politician. So it's money that's more difficult to trace. We could just, you know, get rid of that and let people 
have to put their name on the money that they donate to politicians. But I think the politicians in power who can change that don't want to change that because otherwise they would have changed it. (laughs) They keep complaining about it, but you're in the Senate. So if you're going to complain about dark money, fucking change it. You're the Senate. Like you and Congress can decide how your campaigns are funded. You can say no individual donations only. You could, you could do that. That could be done, but you don't. So on, on that, that is why that came up. It didn't, it's not particularly relevant to Judge Barrett, but (laughs) um, I think Senator Whitehouse was trying to point out that there are more conservative groups that donate money, but there are also um, more left-leaning groups that donate money. So it doesn't matter if you're on the left or the right, this happens. Jason also asked me to comment on the Federalist Society. I don't know what you want me to comment on, so I'm just going to kind of break down what the Federalist Society is because it's one of the societies. Senator Whitehouse was like, look, all these things are funded and they're influencing the judiciary. And Before we get into the Federalist Society, we have to digress for a moment about Federalist, Anti-Federalist, Federalism. We're going to get back to like the, the original Constitutional Convention because that gives context to the Federalist Society. Here we go. So for everyone who loves Hamilton, stick with me. Um, there's going to be some nerdy pop culture references along with talking about the Federalist Anti-Federalist. In high school, we actually did a Federalist Anti-Federalist um, project in Mr. Marx's class, which would have been government. I think it was called government. It, I mean, it could have been civics, but I think it was called government. I, I Look, I'm old. I graduated high school a really long time ago, and I don't remember. But I remember Mr. Marx, and I remember this project because I was that nerd who loved it. I know there were other kids who were like, oh my God, girl, you're not like, get over it. And I'm like, no, this is fascinating. Read these things. These are like, they they were snappy with each other in the Federalist and Anti-Federalist paper. It's like <laughs> shade on top of shade on top of like really eloquent, well-written English with more shade. It was, look, the Federalist, Anti-Federalist fight was full tea over the Constitution. So, <laughs> which is why Hamilton was so interesting, right? The Federalists are generally along the ideology that they support the Constitution and a stronger national republic. That means there is a a national government, and they supported the Constitutional instituting a national government to govern over the states and the individuals. And that's, you know, generally Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, John Jay, there are many others, but those are kind of your your big voices. So in Hamilton, when they're talking about the Federalist and Anti-Federalist papers, which they do, and talking about how Hamilton wrote the other 51, that's what that's about. The Anti-Federalists are generally like George Mason, Thomas Jefferson, Samuel Adams, and they were more opposed to the Constitution in favor of strong local government. And they were, the Anti-Federalists demanded the Bill of Rights to protect individual liberty. So the the anti-federalists were more of like individual rights over everything. And when you get individuals in small states, then they can decide what's right for them on a state level. And the federalists were like, we need a national constitution or this is going to be a shit show because we can't just have all the states doing all the different things if we're going to be a union. Like the states can't just all run wild. We need some type of a constitution. And the anti-federalists were like, yeah, but liberty, like liberty, individual liberty, individual freedom is our like main jam. And so we need a bill of rights to protect individuals from the overreaching arm of the government. So that's, that's where the Federalists and Anti-Federalists break down. Obviously the constitution won, we're all here. <laughs> we're, you know, that's where, that's where that went. But getting to the Federalist Society, according to the Federalist Society themselves, they are a society for law and public policy studies They are a group of conservatives and libertarians interested in the current state of the legal order. It's founded on the principles that the state exists to preserve freedom, that the separation of governmental powers is central to our constitution, and that it is emphatically the province and duty of the judiciary to say what the law is, not what it should be. The society seeks both to promote an awareness of these principles and to further their application through its activities. So it's it's a bringing awareness. It's a foundation. There are Federalist Society groups in a lot of law schools, and that is kind of the generally more right-leaning, strict constructionalist kind of school of thought. They act more as a think tank. They don't advise judges what to do. They say, this is how we see things. 
There is also a more left-leaning group, the American Constitution Society. And the American Constitution Society, by their own words, believes that the law should be a force to improve the lives of all people. ACS works for positive change by shaping debate on vitally important legal and constitutional issues through development and promotion of high-impact ideas to opinion leaders and the media. By building networks of lawyers, law students, judges, and policymakers dedicated to those ideas, and by countering the activist conservative legal movement that has sought to erode our enduring constitutional values— by bringing together powerful, relevant ideas and passionate, talented people, ACS makes a difference in the constitutional, legal, and public policy debates that shape our democracy. So there are two organizations that take more of the judicial restraint as regard to the Federalist Society and the judicial activism as it leans towards the Constitution Society. What's interesting to me is that the Constitution Society kind of leans more towards the traditional anti-federalist, but the traditional anti-federalist would have been the more conservative and the federalist would have really been the more classically liberal. And so everything is kind of flipped. So when we look at like the historical perspective and then look at the modern day perspective, a lot of these ideals have been flipped, which is why it's hard for me to say like conservative liberal and I'm just going with right left because the traditional ideals don't match with the words that we're using right now. And so without getting into a giant, this is not, I am not a political commentator. We're supposed to be talking about law, but like law and politics are conflagating way too much right now for me. And um, that's where I'm just going to go with right, left. <laughs> right means Republican, left means Democrat. We're staying away from titling their philosophy at this point because everything's gotten a little bit wackadoodly and we're going to move on. So that's the Federalist Society and why they were brought up as regards to the dark money comments. Thank you for that question, Jason. Next question. Um, this is also a great question from Mason Byrne on YouTube. Is the only legislative check on the Supreme Court a constitutional amendment? And I don't quite know what we mean by check on the Supreme Court. I think that the Constitution is the check on the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court cases and controversies comes from the founding of the Supreme Court. So cases and controversies means the Supreme Court can't just opine on things. They have to take a real case with a real injured party and a real controversy and decide it. They don't just get to go, whippee, we want to do this. And I think that that is a check on Supreme Court power. You're seeing a conversation right now, again, about court packing. And the media keeps changing the definition of this. So depending on what article you read, you're going to be like, does court packing mean just filling vacancies or does court packing mean extending the number of seats on a Supreme Court? Traditionally, court packing means extending the number of seats. Um, it's been brought up. It came up in the debates. It came up in the presidential debate. It came up in the vice presidential debate. It keeps coming up because Joe Biden has not given an answer other than I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> if you go look for any of his interviews about it, he's like, I'm not going to answer that because if I answer that, you'll talk about it. Yes. Yes, we will. People are voting. People want to know. So it's the thought that if one party feels that they don't like the makeup of the court, that they will add more people to the court. But then because politics swing every few years, you'll get one party in power and then it'll swing back to another party in power. And then the other party will go, yeah, well, they didn't, so we're going to do it. And then it's just a mess. So the Supreme Court has been nine. I fall along the side of the Supreme Court should be nine. And it has worked as nine. People are going to be like, yeah, but they'll just vote party line. They, 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 there's no history to support that. Because you've gotten judges in there that you're, the people were like, oh, they're going to be so conservative. And they're just, they're just not. Because they, they are also influenced by research by life experience, by their colleagues, and by the cases in front of them and the litigates in front of them. The best you can ask for in a judge is somebody who is ethically committed to something bigger than themselves and committed to the fact that the court and their role on the court is more important than their own opinion and their own beliefs. Their belief in the rule of law is the most important thing. Everything else comes second to that. And so then you come into work and you go, okay, I put on my robe. Um, Judge Barrett actually talked about the history of wearing all black robes. I come in in my robe. 
and I am part of this court, and it is our job to sit here neutral and to hear the arguments and decide it based on the law. So is the only legislative check on the Supreme Court a constitutional amendment? I'm not quite sure what we mean by check, but... I think that the way that our three branches of government are set up does check the court, and that's the court's checks and balance, is the fact that they don't legislate, that the legislature does that, and the fact that they interpret what is done. Um, So they're not doing their own will, they're doing the will of others. I would also point out that Sandra Day O'Connor, who was the first woman on the court and was vocally opposed to Roe versus Wade, did uphold that in Casey. So even though her personal beliefs were different, she still upheld the law as she saw it. So I know that the media is like, oh, it's going to be Armageddon if this judge gets on the bench. And then the other media is like, that media is stupid. We think she's amazing. Like It's just gotten so political. <laughs> and I think it's hard to get clicks and views and reads if it's not a sensational headline. And I think people are very, very stressed right now. And so it's hard to parse through a lot of the the big, loud headlines to go, what is the role of a judge even anyway? And hopefully this conversation helps you understand what is important for you in a judge and understand why I don't find Amy Coney Barrett terrifying. I think that she'll uphold the law, and I think there will be times people are surprised what she does, just like people are surprised by what Judge O'Connor did, and people have been surprised by other judges who everyone thought was going to be conservative, and then they ended up being more centralist or even more liberal. So you never know (laughs) because judges don't indicate what they're going to do because they're not supposed to know what they're going to do until they hear the case and the facts as it applies to the law in front of them. I hope that answers that. Qu- <laughs> I hope that answers that question, Mason. Marvin Smith on YouTube asked, "Did Amy Coney Barrett really say it was okay to use the N-word?" And this came up in a number of contexts. I'm also linking a really good USA Today article. You guys, I'm telling you, USA Today right now is one of the more neutral media outlets you can find and it I am shook by it. Like I am constantly surprised by what USA Today is putting out there, but I also appreciate it. So they have a great article and I broke down, I'm going to break down this a little bit. This is coming from a opinion that Judge Barrett ruled on on the Seventh Circuit, Smith versus Illinois Department of Transportation. Illinois? Illinois? Crap. I've totally embarrassed myself. Illinois. I know it's Illinois. That case was a hostile work environment case that came up to the circuit court and the circuit court held with the original jury verdict. So it had gone to jury, it had been appealed. They held with the original jury verdict, jury verdict that it was not a hostile work environment. And she wrote in her opinion that the word used was an egregious racial epithet but then said that his relationship with supervisors at the department had been long problematic and that this single incident in which he was called a racial slur wasn't enough to constitute a hostile work environment in the context of the other issues. And I'm going to just quote her opinion on this, quote, Smith can't win simply by proving that the word was uttered. He must also demonstrate that his his supervisors, I'm just taking the names out of it, his supervisor's use of the word altered the conditions of his employment and created a hostile or abusive work environment. He introduced no evidence that the supervisor's use of the N-word changed his subjective experience of the workplace. To be sure, Smith testified that his time at the department caused him psychological distress, but that was for reasons that predicated his run-in with the supervisor and had nothing to do with his race. His tenure at the department was rocky from the outset because of his poor track record. He clashed with his supervisors over pay, and they confronted him with foul language. As early as August, his first month of his employment, he sent memorandum to the department complaining of a hostile work environment. On Smith's own account, his supervisors made him miserable throughout his employment at the department. But as we have already discussed, 
he has no evidence that his supervisors were lashing out at him because he was black. So in this case, the facts were that there was this long contentious relationship and that the use of the racial slur was not itself a hostile work environment, that there were other circumstances to be considered. So did she say use of the N-word was okay? No. She called it an egregious racial epithet. But does that mean in this context, this use of this word was enough to create a hostile work environment. She said on the facts presented in this case that it was not and held with the lower court's decision. If you want to read the case, you're welcome to go read Smith versus Illinois Department of Transportation and go through all the evidence that was presented on that and her ruling on that. But to answer Marvin's question, no, she didn't um, because factually, it wasn't the only thing in that case. And her ruling on that, it was a unanimous opinion of all three judges, and it was upholding the lower court opinion, the lower court opinion that found the same thing. Stacy Zielinski over on the Facebook group asked a great question and said, if she, Amy Coney Barrett, is so strict on interpretation and that interpretation seemingly dismisses women's rights and holds them back, how does she justify her appointment as a female to the highest court in the land? See, this is a great question (laughs) that I wish one of the senators would have asked Judge Barrett because I would be fascinated to hear what she had to say about it. I would imagine that it would break down somewhere under um, the 14th Amendment guaranteeing equal protection under the law, Or she would explain that when the law says he, she interprets it to mean people or all people. So I'd be really interested to see how she would answer that. I can't say how she justifies it because I am not her um, and I do not know how she would justify it. But I think that the strict interpretation does not per se dismiss women's rights and hold them back. I think that there are very well settled aspects of the law that gender discrimination is illegal, um, that discrimination based on race is illegal, that discrimination based on ability um, or disability is illegal, that discrimination based on uh, sexual orientation is illegal. So I think when we get to that, she would hold down on the, if I was not able to be promoted, I mean, essentially in work because of my gender, that could be gender discrimination. She would also probably say I shouldn't be preferred because of my gender, because that would also be gender discrimination. And that's where I think that would break down for her. But I really wish somebody had asked because it's a great question. It's way better than, you know, Amy Coney Barrett, are you a white supremacist? No. Amy, have you sexually assaulted anyone or been accused of sexually assaulting anyone? No. Amy, do you, do you like warm puppies? Yes, that's an actual question that was asked. Um, Yes, she did like warm puppies, and she also indicated that her family has a chinchilla, and she also likes chinchillas. But I feel like some of these, a question like Stacy's would actually be really welcome to explain her judicial philosophy (laughs) vis-a-vis her sitting there as a woman being appointed to the highest court in the land. I think it's a great question. I would have liked to have heard Amy Coney Barrett answer it. I think she could have answered it because it doesn't ask her to opine on future cases. It asks her to opine on her own philosophy. So I would have been really interested to see that. Also from the Facebook group, Sarah Daggett asked, would you consider her history of cases as leaning towards judicial activism? Nope. (laughs) No, I don't. Um, When she says she's a constructionist, I really think that she is. And I would imagine there will be times where she wishes the law were different, and we might see her indicate that the law is this, and therefore I must do this, which indicates if the law weren't this, I could do something different. But no, I don't see her as leaning towards activism. I I think it's interesting that she's been characterized as a judicial activist because that's like exactly what she is philosophically against. And so it's, it's interesting to me that interpreting the law strictly is considered activism versus what would interpreting the law broadly be then? Because interpreting the law broadly would be adding things into it, which would be more activist than just saying, no, it is what it is. So words words are being used in ways that I don't always understand right now. But I don't think her case history is 
one of judicial activism. I think it is definitely a kind of straight line. The law has a plain meaning, and we're interpreting the law by its plain meaning. Carmen Vermillion asked over on Facebook, curious if you were impressed by her lack of notes or if you felt like this is pretty common in print. I've never watched a confirmation hearing before. Trust, a lot of people haven't. Close print. And then she says, as a mom of three, I can't remember to switch the laundry over, let alone recall for hours and hours very specific cases by memory. Okay, so Carmen, I only have two. Um, and I, I, I am the worst at laundry. And I always need like a very loud alarm and then like a backup alarm to remind me to go do it. And then often I'll just ask my husband to help me because I also can never remember the laundry and it sits there wet and then it gets smelly and then I'm like, shit, now I have to rewash it. Mess. I'm a mess at laundry. And that's not just laundry. It's other things too. I found her recall to be very, very impressive. And I think most lawyers would agree with that. I'd be surprised if they don't. But I'll also say that when I was working day in and day out with criminal law, my recall of it was at the top of mind because it's what I worked with day in and day out. So when we're talking about her recall of the rules of, you know, federal procedure, the rules of judicial ethics, the constitution and the laws she had decided, we are also getting into the fact that she was a constitutional law professor, that these are cases that she worked on. So the amount of hours she would have thought about a ruling before she wrote it would be tremendous. So I think it just goes to how tremendously ingrained this information is to her because she is dedicated to this study of this area of law. If you were going to ask her about other areas of law, if you were going to ask her about criminal law in a random context, it might not have been the same. I also think she is tremendously smart, and it was very clear that she is very, very bright. And I think her lack of notes was very impressive. I also think it goes along to show her view on ethics. I think she showed up saying, you're here to judge my temperament as a judge and ability as a judge. And you should be able to do that without me flipping through binders of notes. This is who I am. And I'm showing up with the knowledge I have for you to examine that, which I think is also impressive because the senators showed up with binders of notes that would have been compiled by themselves and their aides. And she answered questions or sometimes didn't answer questions with a tremendous working knowledge of what she was talking about. I was also very impressed about her ability to say, oh, you're quoting from this thing that I wrote ages ago. And the whole context there is this. I thought that that was very impressive. And a lot of people have talked about how quick these proceedings went, but with how quick these proceedings went, it's not like she would have had time to go read up on everything and all of the documents she produced. She said she produced over 1,800 pages, no, 18,000 pages of documents. So there's no way in the, how short of a time this was she would have been able to go back over and review every single thing. This is just her working knowledge. But also as a judge, as a lawyer, we do research before we decide things. We don't rely on our memory and recall because we know it can be wrong. And so um, I really appreciated seeing her working knowledge, but also knowing that she's open-minded as she indicated, she was open-minded to her colleagues and would listen to arguments. That's the role, her role as a judge, not to impose her own will. So I thought it was, I thought it was impressive. And I would, I mean, when I had judges that were going to deeply question me on the law that I was applying to a case, I would definitely do research and bring in notes to court because I didn't rely on my own recall ever because I knew I would probably get something wrong and I couldn't remember like that. So I always had notes. I also was often terrified of getting it wrong. So it's like when you're nervous and then on top of it, needing to recall information, I I needed notes and I often worked with notes um, in that context. So I think it's very clear that she's confident in her base of knowledge. Phoebe Barron in the Facebook group asked, I would like to know the actual true history of when seats have or haven't been filled during an election year. There's so much misleading information around when certain people have or haven't supported seats being filled in an election year, but no one is citing sources. I actually pulled another article for you, Phoebe, and I'm going to put it in the Facebook group and also put it in the notes. 
from, again, USA Today (laughs) with a whole breakdown of this. So what's different is that, yes, lots of seats have been filled during an election year. Seats have not been filled when voting was already ongoing, but voting has never started in September before either. So it's very hard to, to break down if there's ever been a time when votes have been cast and a seat has been filled. And I couldn't find that answer readily, but generally votes aren't cast until election day, November you know, third, second, third, fourth, fifth, whatever it, wherever it falls on the calendar. Normally, votes are cast that day, and the early voting has been extended substantially this year in a different way than it's ever been in history. Also, <laughs> when we've seen presidents wait until the next elected um, president comes in before nominating a justice, is normally when they do not hold, and I believe I only found one example when they do not hold the Senate. So if the president's from a different party than the Senate and the Senate's like, we're not going to confirm them, there's not much the president can do. They can be like, okay, well, we can go through this whole thing. But if you're not going to confirm them, then why even bother? So a, a president wouldn't really bring someone to the Senate if they didn't have the votes. I've never seen and haven't been able to find an example of where the president had the votes in the Senate and then chose not to bring forth a nominee because they were in an election year. I couldn't find that example. And it leads me to believe that example does not exist. Kamala Harris stated in the vice presidential debate that Lincoln um, did not put forth a Supreme Court nominee in an election year, but actually (laughs) he didn't put forth a Supreme Court nominee because the Senate was in recess, not because it was an election year. So I found that to be a bit misleading. And then when the Senate came back from recess, he put forth a Supreme Court nominee. So again, I would like to see an example of when the president and the party in charge of Congress were the same party and the president chose not to put forth a nominee because I couldn't find that example and I don't think that it exists. We have two more things to go over real quick. First, from Karen Millett in the Facebook group, if the Supreme Court needs to intervene, Not sure what the right word is. Perhaps make a decision if the presidential election gets too close. How does that work? Does it go to the local court first and then get kicked up? What if multiple states need a decision? Karen, this is a fantastic question. And we saw this play out in 2000. So we actually have recent history to pull from in this. And what happened in 2000 when there were all the hanging chads in Florida is that there were multiple lawsuits in local courts in Florida. There were multiple Florida Supreme Court rulings, and then it went up to the United States Supreme Court. And I'm including two articles about the timeline of that. But yes, what would happen is that if there was anomalies in particular states, then in the federal district court in that area where the county that's problematic is, you would get lawsuits in that district court, and then they should go up to the state Supreme Court, and then the different state Supreme Court decisions should get kicked into the into the Supreme Supremes. The thing is with elections is that electoral college members need to be nominated to be assigned by the deadline in December. So that's where the Supreme Court got involved is because they were coming up quickly on the deadline in December with the 2000 election to have those electoral college members nominated and who they were going to cast their votes for. But if they don't do that in time, it can be that there is no electoral college representation for a particular state if that state can't get its shit together and say, okay, our electoral college votes are going here based on the vote of the people. Then you get into the really interesting question of what happens to that state? Did the people of that state just not get representation because the state couldn't get it together and get the lawsuits resolved and get the votes counted? And yeah, that could happen. So I imagine, I I mean, I imagine that there will be a litigation with regard to this election and we will see this all play out through December like we did in 2000. I know everybody's like, please just let it be over. But there's already litigation starting with this because Pennsylvania has decided that it will count ballots that are received after election day. 
versus continuing to count ballots, but ending election night, the ballots that they have or the ballots that they count, Pennsylvania is like, no, no, we cool. We're going to we're going to accept ballots for three days after election day. And people are like, but you the Constitution actually says that 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 you have to vote by the first Tuesday after November 1st. And that's that's the day. And you can't ballots cast after that can't can't be voted. And uh, or can't be counted. And so there is already litigation working its way up with regard to Pennsylvania trying to extend election day beyond election day. So this is signaling to me that we're going to be we're going to be in this. And then by way of a group comment, because a number of you had asked, and I'm just going to group it all together, which was, can we talk a little bit about why there were so many questions Judge Barrett wouldn't answer. And we talked about it at the beginning, kind of the Ginsburg rule, and we talked about the way that Judge Barrett sees her role as a judge, and she restated it over and over and over. I'm not going to say this ruling was right or this ruling was wrong. I'm not going to say I agree with this reasoning or disagree with this reasoning. She was not going to comment on matters of policy or politics because that's not her job. And she said very clearly, my job is to rule as a judge on a case in front of me. And I can show you my understanding of the law. I can explain my own rulings, but I'm not going to say I agree with this decision. I disagree with that decision, or I would do this, or I wouldn't do that. And that follows along with what Judge Ginsburg said her role was as a judge too. So I know people are all spun up about it, but this is nothing new. There was an exchange with Senator Harris, where she was asking about, you know, do you agree that smoking causes cancer? And Judge Barrett's like, I acknowledge that the um, that the pack of cigarettes says that smoking can cause cancer, and that seems well settled. And she asked about a few other things along that line that were well settled, and then asked about climate change. And Judge Barrett's like, look, this is a matter that's still up for public debate, and and there is still the many disagree and are like, there shouldn't still be public debate on this. There still is public and scientific debate over climate change, the cause and effect of climate change. And so she's like, no, this is a political issue. This isn't for me to decide. And this isn't for me to comment on. And people were like, what? Why can't she answer that? And she's like, it's not well settled. It's just not well settled. And I'm not going to make a determination on policy. I'm going to wait and see what's presented. And so then when asked, well, do you believe in science? She's like, I believe in science. And if science comes up, I will do my research and listen to the arguments and listen to my colleagues. And again, that's all we can ask a judge to do, in my opinion, is to listen to the litigants in front of you and let them present the arguments of how something breaks down and go from there. And judges aren't expected to be experts in all areas. They're expected to be experts in listening, (laughs) truly, to be experts in listening and interpreting the law. And from everything I saw, Judge Barrett is is able to do that. Um, her former law students that spoke spoke of somebody with tremendous empathy. So though I know there are lots that disagree with her judicial philosophy, and that's everyone's right to do, if you do disagree with her judicial philosophy, tell your senator. You can still tell your senator, can you vote no on this? Because the vote's not until, you know, Thursday, the 22nd. You can have a voice in this process through your vote, through your voice, and through who you vote for. And through the representation you pick for yourself, because that is absolutely 100% your right. And that's kind of, that's kind of where we're going to leave this. (laughs) There are a ton of articles down below that I have found to be um, helpful and to give kind of all sides of this conversation. If that's helpful to you, please check them out. There will also be a corresponding blog post on emilydbaker.com with those because I know that it's helpful to find resources without having to parse through also a whole bunch of bullshit on Twitter. <laughs> we'll have to talk about Twitter another day because they've gotten themselves into some hot water too. Thank you so much for hanging with me today. Hopefully this was helpful and gave some context to what's happening. And If you are somebody who is deeply concerned about this um, judicial nominee, I hope that that her judicial philosophy allows you to know that she's not going to just sit on the bench and pull things her way. They have to come to the court in due time. And we have seen judges who people thought would go one way do absolutely the opposite. So I think it's very hard for us to say what she will and won't do 
other than it seems that she will sit fairly and look at the law as it is and apply the facts before her to it. That's what I see from this uh, confirmation proceeding. (laughs) And I do think she'll be confirmed this week. So we'll see. And if something goes off the rails, we're going to talk about it live on Friday because Let's Talk Live is every Friday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Eastern. And I've added a Tuesday live to kind of pre-talk about the episodes that are coming out at 10 a.m. Central. So I look forward to seeing you then. I will talk to you in the next one. Have a good one, friend. Thanks for sticking around for today's episode. For episodes like this and conversations like this, come join us in the Facebook community. The Get Legit community is where we discuss the episodes, where I answer your questions, and we have an opportunity to take a deeper dive in a respectful, conversational environment. The Get Legit community is on Facebook. There's a link down below, or you can go to getlegitlive.com. I'll see you on the inside.